This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Last week, I took the subway to visit a friend on the Upper West Side. As I was departing the 96th Street Station, I saw a man, probably no older than his mid-30s, rifling through one of the trash receptacles. He was pulling out piles of newspapers, scattering them all over the ground in a way that resembled a rather subversive and messy Christmas tree skirt. He was wrapped with attention at his task. As I walked by, another man, a fairly dapper, older man in his 60s, charged over to him and insisted he stop what he was doing. The younger man paused for a second, skeptically looked him up and down, cocked his head, and loudly retorted, Mind your own business. The elderly man responded with an expletive and stormed off. This incident has been plaguing me. In replaying the event again in my head, I can't help but puzzle over what the younger man meant when he stated, mind your own business. After all, he was in a New York City subway station, he was infiltrating a community garbage can, and he was littering in a public place. How is that not everyone's business? The lines between our public and personal experiences have become more ambiguous than ever before. Wireless internet, cell phones, and a rabid media have made much of our personal lives quite public. I have overheard a racy, one-sided phone conversation in an airport restroom, a conversation on a bus wherein my seatmate had their cell volume so high I could hear every word of both sides of their conversation. And one time I mistakenly read a love letter sent to me that was actually meant for another Debbie M. in a colleague's email address book. The whole world knows about a certain president's penchant for oral sex and cigars. We recently became privy to a Kid Rock post-concert orgy. And how could anyone ever forget the image of O.J. flanked by police in his white bronco? Is it, a, it is a strange phenomenon, this participation in not only what is private, but is often more information than required or requested. But now, as much as I may have snickered when Paris Hilton's phone book was broadcast to the world, I shudder thinking that if it could happen to Paris, it could happen to anyone. And it does, quite easily. It is a new kind of cultural intimacy, this mass exposure to experience and information. In our sharing, we have become a community without boundaries. This is, of course, something that has both its advantages and drawbacks. For every blog that might expose a writer's false memoirs, there is a targeted identity theft or an intended breach of confidentiality. Now, not only have the lines between our public and personal experiences become more ambiguous, the lines between our private and public consciousness is nebulous as well. I recently read a powerful editorial in the March issue of Poetry Magazine titled, In the Flux That Abolishes Me, 
The piece poses pertinent questions as to the relevance and the preservation of what may or may not be publicly consumed work or art in the public consciousness. The writer asks this, does it seem cruelly inadequate that, out of all those hours these poets spent in solitude and silence, and given all the life they sacrificed for the sake of their work, only a handful of poems, maybe nothing more than a stanza here and there, persist in the consciousness of a later generation? I, for one, feel that that is cruelly inadequate. For all the time spent by bombarded by useless and trivial public displays of bullshit, I'd much rather be exposed to the private profundities of unknown poets and philosophers and musicians. What is our responsibility to this fragment of our culture? Or asked in a different way, what is our business or isn't? Or what should be our business and isn't? A friend of mine recently related a story that deeply resonated. He recounted a, an experience on a, his commuter train wherein the woman sitting next to him subjected everyone in the vicinity to a deafening cell phone conversation. After listening ad nauseum for about half an hour, he politely asked her if it was possible to speak more softly. She looked at him in utter amazement and told him to mind his own business. Rather than take it on the chin, he stood up and asked everyone sitting around them if anyone else might be bothered by her loud and outlandish banter. Every single person raised their hand. The woman angrily and noisily hung up and hurried to another car. The remaining passengers applauded and quietly continued their commute. And in my perfect world, they were all happily reading poetry. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. With me today to continue our talk about culture, celebrity, design, transformation, and how this impacts the world around us is one of the country's foremost cultural anthropologists, Dr. Grant McCracken. Grant holds a PhD from the University of Chicago in cultural anthropology. He has been the director of the Institute of Contemporary Culture, a senior lecturer at the Harvard Business School, a visiting scholar at the University of Cambridge, and an adjunct professor at McGill University in Montreal. He's the author of eight books, including Culture and Consumption, Plentitude, Big Hair, and Transformation. He has consulted widely in the corporate world for clients including Coca-Cola, Ikea, Chrysler, Kraft, and Kimberly-Clark. He is a member of the IBM ThinkPad Marketing Advisory Council, and last year, Indiana University published his amazing book. We're going to talk about that quite a lot today, Culture and Consumption Two: Markets, Meaning, and Brand Management. Welcome back, Grant. Thank you for being here again. Thanks for having me, Debbie. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so let's talk about your new marvelous book, Culture and Consumption Two. Um, in the book, you talk about living in the material world. Um, you talk about that quite a lot, and you say, the case against the consumer society is the new orthodoxy, a staple of classroom, cocktail circuit, and media commentary. We have found a new flag in which to wrap ourselves. I love the way you've written that. Can you talk a little bit about more about what you meant when you wrote it? Mm -hmm. I think the academic world in the, in the post-war, uh, after World War II, 
um, began to construct an argument against popular culture and consumer culture. And that's abated somewhat now, and I think that was to some extent a generational choice. A generation came up that knew popular culture, believed in popular culture, and found some of these criticisms ideologically motivated and intellectually thin. Um, so I think, I think the, the, the intellectual crisis that was set in train um, by this criticism of the consumer society is now abating a little bit. And, and thank goodness that's the case. Um, I, I think that the condemnation of consumer culture meant that ours was a culture at odds with itself. It was unprepared to kind of accept some of the, the simple facts of, 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 of our world, one of which is culture and commerce are always intertwined and to insist that any culture touched by commerce is somehow not culture or dubious culture or sellout culture or sellout culture is really to put yourself at odds really to prevent yourself even to engage with a kind of an understanding of who you are and what this how this world um, is constituted um, but can I just go back to kind of one of the themes here just to pick up on your opening remarks which I liked very much Thank you. It made me think of uh, Lamont's work at Princeton. She talks about blurred boundaries, that we all of us now have these blurred boundaries. And, uh, you know, this, this question of uh, mind your own business or whose business are these, these matters and, and, and the extent to which we now have porous cells and, and, and the world now insists on kind of pouring into us. Um, you know, in a perfect world... I, I guess what we see happening for some purposes in a consumer culture is that what used to be that aristocratic and latterly an avant-garde privilege of self-definition, deciding who you are for your own purposes, making yourself up grandly, um, that that once aristocratic, once avant-garde privilege is now everybody's privilege. And, and one of the ways we engage in that uh, privilege and necessity um, is by... Uh, drawing upon the meanings made available to us by the commercial world, um, and, and but it it means that you know we have this interesting kind of uh, tension in our lives. Uh, ideally, we'd like to use our blurred boundaries just to get out of ourselves into the world to, to forage for new definitional opportunities and to reinvent ourselves as we go. But it's almost as if it's the case that you can't get out unless the world can get in. Mm. That to puncture the boundary in one direction is to puncture it in the other direction. And so our ability, our liberty to up and move uh, costs us the, 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 the inclination on the part of the world to come rushing in at, on us through these, uh, through these punctures. Through these wormholes, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> well, interesting, because on your blog today, you wrote, um, let me read this. I, think, I thought it was really fascinating. Most of us are a crowded house, many persona, not always on the best of terms. Some of us are actually more like a motel, with several of the persona that make up personhood are strangers to one another. Some of these selves are self-created, but some are taken from the media marketplace, movies, novels, games. I actually learned something about selves I didn't know lurked within in the final moments of the PC version of Blade Runner. Some part of me has been shaped by my reverence for certain intellectual celebrities and politicians. So how many selves do you think that most people are right now? Uh, I guess it depends on how we define them, but I think, you know, several, five or six is not unusual. And... Um and you see people using consumer goods and design more generally to negotiate this, to construct, to sustain this portfolio of cells. Somebody was just telling me about um, a group of uh, a kind of lifestyle that's, it, that's now um, active in London 
And I'm not, still not quite sure whether they had invented this lifestyle or were reporting it. So that's kind of an open question here. <laughs> the listener will forgive this, this um, ambiguity. But they were talking about um, these people as in not buying a single automobile, um, an expensive one, let's say, but buying two or three automobiles, um, much less expensive automobiles, in order to kind of have different vessels in which to move about the world that captured this diversity of the self. Mm, well, that's really no different than different shoes for different moments in one's <laughs> life. It's a, a somewhat more expensive way of uh, Absolutely. trying to express who you are yeah. through your accoutrement, so to speak. It's hard to know whether this is good news or bad news for Detroit, an industry in, in, in crisis. Uh, many cars is, sounds like a good thing, but if you're refusing a new car purchase in order to have this diversified portfolio of automobiles, that can't be a good thing. Well, I actually read a really interesting fact. I believe that there are now more cars on the road than actually licensed drivers. <laughs> so that means that the average driver has more than one car in which to decide who they want to be that day. Yeah, and some cars are leaving the garage without a driver present. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, Grant, we have to take a, a short break. Um, I'm so glad that you're back here on Design Matters. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman. My guest today is the wonderful and brilliant cultural anthropologist, Grant McCracken. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, this is Scott Biondich, Global Packaging Manager at the Coca-Cola Company. And I'm really excited about the upcoming Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event in New York City this April. I'll be there revealing the critical steps to developing differentiated and preferred packaging for consumers around the world. Design gurus Rem Koolhaas and Philippe Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face. They'll deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. For more information, call 888-670-8200. Visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD or send an email to register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Hey, rise to the challenge. I look forward to seeing you in the Big Apple this April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Tune into Small Business Trends Radio with Anita Campbell every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Anita and expert guests provide a big-picture view of the small business market, identifying the trends and major events driving the robust growth of the small business market. Whether you are a small business owner or a company of any size desiring to sell small businesses or reach the small business market with a product or service, Small Business Trends Radio is your resource for trends that influence the global small business market. Right here on the Bottom line for business talk, Voice America Business. Achieve total wealth management. 
Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Melman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Melman. Welcome back. It is 3.18 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is cultural anthropologist Grant McCracken. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Grant, our phone lines are now open. Please note our new number, 1-866-233-7861. Grant, before the break, we were talking about our many selves and how the various things we might buy express those different selves, and we were talking about cars and how they might describe ourselves and shoes and whatnot. I think it's a really interesting time in our culture in that this is really the only time that I can think of that just by looking at somebody, by looking at the clothes that they're wearing, the sneakers that they might be wearing, the iPod or other MP3 player that might be adorning their bodies, their tattoos, their jewelry, you can very easily now describe who a person is just by what they look like. There really isn't a uniform anymore for a culture. There's now lots of different uniforms for lots of different subcultures in the society that we're living in. Yeah. I think this diversity of self, though, means that when people draw design inspiration from each of several selves and bring those together, it's a mixed signal, and it's very hard to know who they are from how they dress. And if they're choosing to represent just one of their cells, it's hard to know whether there are other cells and what those other cells might be. I was just in a, stuck in a limo with a guy in a conversation, uh, like we were sharing a limo driving, it took about an hour, and he was on a cell phone for the whole hour talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of data for an anthropologist. I mean, we're thrilled when we can overhear a conversation like that. What drove me nuts was I couldn't tell who he was from the converse from an hour of conversation I couldn't figure out who he was what was he talking about he was just having a personal conversation with somebody giving them some kind of advice career and emotional he's a capital markets guy and I never that's the last thing I thought maybe he's a psychologist maybe he's a psychiatrist I just had no clue so it's it's sort of charming that that we are so diverse now that it's sometimes Mm -hmm. very hard to pick oh yeah I I actually have to confess that I get a perverse sort of thrill by Um, only living one part of my persona at certain times. For example, you know, I have to spend so much time trying to look charming and lovely during the day at work that on the weekends, it's not unusual for me to wear the same thing that I started wearing Friday evening into Monday morning. So much so that there are people on my block that I am convinced are sure that I am a bag lady. (laughs) And I actually have to tell you that there is a part of me that loves that ability to slip into that personality and not have to try so hard and not have to be as concerned about what a different part of the world might think from Monday to Friday. Absolutely. I I think that's one of the things maybe one of the things 
one of the ways we're dealing with living with diversity and dynamism is by having little pockets of absolute predictability. Mm -hmm. I think for for about four years in the 1990s, I had the same thing for lunch every day. Absolutely horrify my wife. Um, But for me, it was just, I called it tomato surprise because it was absolutely unsurprising. Mm -hmm. And there was something charming about just the constancy of... (laughs) Well, when when we're living in a day and age when we don't know from one day to the next, forget, you know, how sports teams are going to do or what musicians might, you know, how they might be wrecking their lives, but what Mother Nature might be doing to us when we're living in such tumultuous times, there is something really nice about the consistency of a tomato surprise sandwich, (laughs) I do have to say. Grant, we have a caller on the line. I'm Gregory. Welcome to Design Matters. How are you today? Good, honey. How are you? Good. Very good. Hi, Grant. Hey, Gregory. Well, on the subject of what people buy, um, you know, I'm wondering what you think about the DVD releases that we see of all our popular shows that, that we grew up with in the 60s and the 70s. I mean, uh, it, it's certainly normal uh, and un- understandable that they've released I Love Lucy and Bewitched and The Monsters and I Dream of Jeannie, but it becomes more obscure when they start releasing things like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and The Big Valley, which I am thrilled about because I can watch Barbara Sandwich shoot Colleen Dewhurst, and um, The Flying Nun, which is coming out. And I'm, I know what it means to me. I know as soon as I get all of the programming that I loved, all the cartoons and all of my favorite programs, I'm going to shut the door, and I can shut out the cell phone conversations and Nick and Jessica, whom I don't know who they are, I just know their names, and just retreat and forget the nasty world. But I wonder what kind of indictment that is on the consuming public that justifies these companies producing and releasing these things. Um, what do you think that really says? Hmm. Well, you know, for me, the, these DVD releases are paradoxical because I love to buy them and I hate to watch them. Right. <laughs> so, so when um, The X-Files came out, I thought, you know, praise the Lord, now I can have these and look at them anytime I want. And in point of fact, I, when I tried to look at them, I thought, no, there's no replacement for the chill of those Sunday nights when you right. were... It was like gathering around the radio in the Absolutely. 1930s. The fact that it was being broadcast at that very moment that, um, that made it powerful somehow. So, so it is a paradox for me. I, I'm, I'm grateful to have these things on call. But uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, I'm 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 surprised how partic- particular they are to time and place. Yeah, I find it really interesting. A couple of a couple of additional comments on that. I have been over the years amassing such a large DVD collection, and like you, not watching them. That I I, I made a little challenge for myself, and I decided, well, I'm not going to open this DVD until I actually watch it. And so as a result, I now have stacks of unopened DVDs, which is somewhat curtailing my wanting to purchase more. You know, these are the questions that now exist in a consumer culture, and they keep coming up because the technologies keep changing. Sure, shoot, nobody is asking this question in a systematic way because the academic world has been really slow to make itself... Uh, the devoted student of a contemporary culture, because it is, just to go back to the point with which we open, mm-hmm. often so much the captive of these of these stereotypes. Um, I guess the thing that, uh, yeah, I mean, there's something charming uh, about something about the good TV of ba- uh, uh, the, the good company of bad TV. Mm-hmm. The good of, company of, 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 bad, bad, of bad TV. Of bad TV. Yes, yes. There's something absolutely. settling it down to sh- a show that you know 
It's a little like Tomato Surprise, actually, all over again. I love watching Columbo reruns mm -hmm. because you know who did it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And there's something about the music on um, the, N the uh, NFL music, yeah. you know, that I just feel it brings me right back to those days when Dad was in the living room right. watching football and I felt safe in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, uh, can I just, there's one, another example here. It's the Law and Order. It's stuff that's so formed by genre that you really don't have to watch it very carefully because you know in the case of Law and Order that, that Lenny will, say, will make the wisecrack just before they go to the commercial break <laughs> and that the, the detectives will hand the thing over to the lawyers at about 25 minutes after the hour. It's so predictable that there's a certain charm there. Yeah, and, and safety and, and security and, and yeah. consistency. But you also say that goods help us make choices. They help make our culture concrete and public. And why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I, material culture makes culture material is, is kind of the little motto that's sometimes used in anthropology. That that these are, that ideas are 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 mere and and insubstantial and in some sense imponderable until they take up form mm -hmm. in the world in the form of of an object. So you you can have various notions of what it is to be a woman, but until the 1980s. People People began to experiment with certain kinds of hairstyles and certain kinds of, you know, dress for success looks. That became a more open, more public, more democratic kind of discussion about, okay, who are women in the world of work exactly? That got work. You know, you could talk about it endlessly. And, of course, feminism had been talking about it. But until the stuff began to take shape and form in the material world, that was, as we say, just discussion. Then it began, then people began, not least, people outside of the feminist community began to see that their world was changing, and it was fair notice to them that women now in the world, the world of work was changing. And, and had many different selves, exactly. and, and very legitimate selves, and very efficient selves. Exactly. So that's sort of part of the... Part of that, that material culture is culture made material. Well, at the, in, in your book, at the end of your chapter on your Oprah experience, which is hilarious, by the way, um, you conclude by saying, a lost continent awaits us. It is time to take our culture back. What do you mean by that? Well, again, this is back to the point I was making a moment ago that, 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 that there are so many things to find out about our culture and to think about what it is we found when we find them out. Um, that are not being taken up because the academic world uh, is very often the captive of these certainties, these verities, these orthodoxies about the consumer culture, mm -hmm. and they're dismissive of it. So when I did the Oprah show, academics turned on me with this notion. Really? Of, oh, yeah, you're going Hollywood. You, so, know, you, you no longer yeah. have any intellectual. Uh, and Jonathan Franzen, of course, felt roughly like that, that being included on Oprah's bestseller list somehow diminished his claim to being a, a serious uh, writer. Why is there this disdain for mass culture or from a, a sort of mass mentality or capital yeah. culture? Why is there that disdain? Why is there that looking down on sort yeah. of mentality? I don't understand that. Yeah, and I'd love to. I'd really love to yeah. understand it. There's a great book by John Kerry called The Intellectuals and the Masses. I think it's Oxford University Press, and maybe it's like 82 or 80-something. Um, and it's a wonderful treatment of the, the foundations of the... Um, uh, he looks at uh, um, um, Levis and his contempt for uh, popular culture. And intellectuals, in, in, uh, uh, not least, um, systematically... Uh, they could feel the rising tide of a popular, of a democratic culture, and they could tell that, in fact, 
the elites were were about to be dislodged by a popular culture, where people was kind of a, a, that a commercial culture would respond to what people cared about and then change itself to accommodate popular taste. Mm-hmm. Of course, the notion was, well, this popular taste is is trash. That the that the, the, the people don't have taste, strictly speaking, and unless we, the intellectuals, the elites, f- form them and inform them, they are uh, they're desperate. Um, well, I think it's interesting just to, to add a, a one last thought to this conversation um, that here is this you know mass media maven Oprah getting more people than ever before to actually read. Um, so we'll be, we'll come back after these messages uh, and talk more about that. Just to let everybody know they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hello, I'm Sharon Ryder Lindberg from Unilever North America. I'll be speaking at Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design Event in April at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. I'll be discussing the development and the rollout of the new Hellman's Global Brand Identity. Fuse is the destination for brand design leaders. Will you be there? Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or call 888-670-8200 to find out more about this great event. Consider this an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. Stay at the top of your game. Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD today. Mention design and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Look forward to seeing you in New York in, in April. Mind Your Business with Danielle Hansen talks about the nuts and bolts of starting, running, and expanding a business. From time management, leadership, sales, marketing, and customer service to office management, using technology, business plans, accounting, taxes, and networking. Danielle and her expert guests share their years of experience on a variety of topics. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Mind Your Business with Danielle Hansen. Useful tips, authoritative advice, creative solutions. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. You work hard and you need to take time to relax and rejuvenate yourself. Travel is one of the most effective and gratifying ways to achieve this. Tune into Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Judy Jackson, will teach you how you can enhance your lifestyle through travel. Travel Connections will also bring you the latest news on what's hot and exciting in vacation and travel trends. So tune in to Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on Voice America Business. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business.
We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the Internet focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Melman, your host, and my guest today is the marvelous cultural anthropologist Grant McCracken. If you'd like to join our conversation or if you have a question for Grant, our phone lines are open. Please call 1-866-233-7861. Grant, before the break, we were talking a bit about Oprah. I'd like to talk some more about television in general. And I know that um, you've written in your blog a bit about the supposed death of television advertising. How are you feeling about TV advertising these days? Hmm. I guess... I mean, there's this sense that, uh, well, what's certainly true is that people are moving their marketing budgets out of TV advertising into all kinds of other things on web, Google advertising, in-game advertising. Um, So there's a movement going on. My sense is that uh, it's too early to count TV advertising out because it's such a powerful meaning maker in the larger scheme of things. There is no more powerful uh, tool in the marketer's toolkit to make meanings, to make brands. Um, so, so I'm nervous about this, declar- this declaration that, that the ad, TV ad is dead. But uh, to the extent that budgets are moving, it seems to me that it's good news for the design community because it means that the brand will now be represented by de- design, the designed brand um, image and, and word. Um, that that will have to take up some of the lion's share of, of meaning manufacture on behalf of the brand. It, in the event that people cease to do TV advertising. So it's, it's just an interesting it, advantage goes now to, um, a, a, a way, to the design companies and away from the advertising agencies. Well, what's interesting, I was in a meeting this morning with one of my uh, package design clients, and he had a, a very interesting point. He said, well, you know, when you think about it, the only thing that the consumer actually pays for is what we are putting on the shelf. And I thought that that was an interesting way of talking about how design actually does influence or doesn't influence purchase decision mm-hmm. or the idea that you want to covet something mm. because of the way it looks. Yeah. And that might be one of the argu- ways of... And I sometimes think of CVS as the place that brands go to die. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at you know magnificent pieces of design when they're when they're w- w- made to exist in that environment just shrivel and die. And that's something I w- was wondering about you know, the extent to which designers can take all of the shelf presence and make that the unit of, of analysis instead of every individual package being mm. designed. So the environment does part of the experience. Exactly. It becomes still that world and, and, and to use the powers of design to speak with greater force and kind of just to block out some of the noise. How do you think that that could be done? I mean, tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, it's, it's a shelving nightmare, I'm sure, but if you made, if you said, okay, we have four, uh, we, we have four variations on the package theme, and if you line them up sort of left to right, you get a larger, each of, you get a mosaic. Mm-hmm. Each individual package helps to form a larger image or communication of some kind, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, helps communicate in-store. You talked a little bit about the profusion of choice and how designers can um, potentially help that. I mean, there are, what, 75 brands of deodorant, 140-something brands of toothpaste. Mm. How does one really get 
somebody to make an educated decision about what's best for them that's not just based on an emotional point of view on how this is going to maybe make me feel as opposed to how it's going to perform. Mm. Well, you're the expert here. I mean, I wouldn't presume to comment here, but I, I am. I mean, one of my favorite pieces of design, w one of my favorite illustrations of the brilliance of design is, is when you, you buy a new piece of technology or a new a 3D product and as you pick it up, you realize how it's supposed to be used. Mm -hmm. It's those objects that just have intelligence written into them, and mm -hmm. they make you smarter. Yeah. I mean, you, ju you just feel like you're a genius because you just know what to do with this complicated object. Because it's, I mean, yeah. iPod might be a case in point here. Where well, I think that's, that's what is so wonderful about what design can contribute to our lives, is that essentially good design helps you solve the problem. It helps you figure out right. the answer. And in doing so, you end up feeling good about yourself, yeah. which is a, a yeah. wonderful interaction to have with a brand or a product. There's a, there's a quote that I wrote down that you've written, and, um, and I wanted to share that with you. It's a quote from one of your articles. Branding is a process of meaning manufacture that begins with the biggest, boldest gestures of the corporation and works its way down to the tiniest gestures. This is one of the reasons that design matters. The look and feel, the fit and the finish, the beautiful, the sensual, the tactile, design is an essential medium of the brand message. Good design captures, commandeers, takes control of every interface and interaction between the consumer and the brand, right down to the little sound that packages make when we close them. Click. This is a brand message. That's beautiful, Grant. Oh, really, thank really beautiful. Thank you. Um, tell, tell me more about how you feel consumer culture is looking right now? Do you feel like we're in an optimistic place? Do you feel like that it's become more slovenly and sort of more mass marketed than ever before? What is your sense of the visual vocabulary of our time right now? Hmm. Uh, I guess one of the things we're seeing is that a popular culture, a mass culture is everything high and low. That it's just a great profusion of possibilities so that anybody can find anything they want and and that's what it means it, you know those 19th century intellectuals who railed against popular culture were right nobody's any longer telling us what what sort of music we should be listening to what sort of tv no, nobody's playing the arbiter well i think technology has helped us take more control of our lives yeah. we are no longer bound by the times that television programs are on we can listen to whatever music we want whenever we want to yeah. and there's a certain freedom and i think a certain hubris in, in all of that because suddenly it's life as we choose it not how it's fed up to us yeah Yes, absolutely. But I, I think we do. I wouldn't go as far as that Swarthmore chap, what's his name, the guy who did the Profusion of, of Choice mm -hmm. book. Um, I mean, he wants to wring hands, I think, in a very liberal way and say, oh, my God, we should diminish the world of choice made available to us by commerce because it's a bad thing. It's an overwhelming thing. We can't. But, you know, design can obviously play a role here to the extent that it cools the world, stills the world, simplifies the world of choice, gives, giving us kind of view corridors instead of, in, as it is now, we kind of get everything at once. I'm still, I mean, one of the issues here is this kind of touch point issue, which is now kind of the language that people are using to talk about all the ways in which a brand manifests itself in the world. One of the issues here is um, 
this is just a hobby horse of mine and I probably shouldn't indulge myself and I was stunned that good magazines still have those blow-in subscription oh, forms. Oh, I know, I know. So you pick up the New Yorker. It's beautifully designed. They're individual and collective acts of design. At least twice when you're reading that. And the prose is magnificently designed. And you have to... This brand insists on making you uh, um, bend down and pick up two pieces of paper every time you look at an issue. I mean, that's not a touch point. That's an insult. The fact that it's allowed still to stand tells us that there are parts of the commercial culture that still don't quite get what it is we're, we're hoping to accomplish. Well, then you end up between um, what is the, the gene here? Is it to get people to buy the magazine or is it get people to read the magazine? I was in a focus group with... Um, a magazine editor going through a magazine redesign several months ago, and I actually posed the question in the debrief, why do you still have these god-awful blow-in cards? And this is for a magazine about design and culture. And, you know, what, what other venue should be cognizant of that more than a magazine of that genre? And um, she turned to me and she said, Deb, I'd love to take them out, but that's the number one way in which people subscribe to the magazine through the blowing cards. And so, you know, what do you then do? How do you, if you're making it easier for people to engage with your product, your magazine, whatever it ends up being, you then have to fight the fight of that being an uncomfortable and rather ugly experience as well. I'll be very honest with you. The minute I get a magazine, the first thing I do is go through every single page and tear out all the half ads, the blow-in cards, the separate yeah. pieces of paper, the, the, the inserts all go in the garbage. Yeah. And then I, I can sit down and have my experience with my magazine. Absolutely. But shouldn't they go in the mailbox? What do you mean? I mean, shouldn't you just send them back to the corporation? <laughs> it's kind of like, why well, throw them out? Just put them in one of those red boxes and have them return to send it. <laughs> right. Well, then, you know, I kind of feel guilty that I'm making them pay for something that, you know. So they but should. I know. <laughs> well, you know, that's why I still need years more therapy because I feel <laughs> guilty doing things like that. Um, you know, you, you also say that... Um, Commerce has a way of making capital colorless. That's in the last chapter of your book. And I was really struck by that. You know, how do you believe that commerce has a way of making capital colorless? It's the brilliance of money that it is a translation table that can turn anything into anything. So if I sell enough aluminum siding, I'm, I'm not paid in kind. I'm not paid in goats and, you know, a, 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 a house in the village which are, you know, not fungible, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they're modestly fungible. I can trade somebody two goats for a pound of butter or something like that, but it's very difficult. Yeah, you might have a hard time doing that on 34th Street. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but uh, that's the great thing about money is that it is colorless. I you see. can turn okay. any very material object into something that can then be translated into yet another material. Mm -hmm. Object, so it's this magnificent table where anything can become anything. As a cultural operator, that's like breathtaking. It's the great equalizer in many ways, I guess. You know, sadly, sadly, because that's what, in, in many ways, that's how we now define ourselves and define success and define, you know, what it is we hope to accomplish you know, to get yeah. this. Don't you think we're sort of saying, "Geez, I think we care less about 
Somewhat less than we used to. Uh, well, we'll come back and debate this then. This is great. I uh, would like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is cultural anthropologist Grant McCracken. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, this is Scott Bionich, Global Packaging Manager at the Coca-Cola Company. And I'm really excited about the upcoming Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event in New York City this April. I'll be there revealing the critical steps to developing differentiated and preferred packaging for consumers around the world. Design gurus Rem Koolhaas and Philippe Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face. They'll deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. For more information, call 888-670-8200. Visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD or send an email to register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Hey, rise to the challenge. I look forward to seeing you in the Big Apple this April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The challenge of change comes as ramped up due to the advent of information age and the interconnectedness of global community. In a high-tech world, the ability to embrace change, adapt, and respond accordingly is key to personal and professional success. Talking Change with Ann Powers, airing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, explores the hows, whys, and what to do when faced with change. Embrace the new reality, adopt transition into your personal power portfolio, and tune into Talking Change with Ann Powers every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time right here on the bottom line business talk voice america business the bottom line in business talk voice america business we're back with design matters with debbie millman if you have a question for debbie feel free to call us at 866-472-5790 once again here's the host of design matters debbie millman Welcome back. It is 3.47 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is cultural anthropologist Grant McCracken. Um, Before the break, Grant and I were beginning to debate uh, our opinions on colorless capital, but during the break, Grant asked me if our listeners know that we are broadcasting from Manhattan, and um, I, I said I thought that they, they probably do. Um, and Grant, you had a, a really interesting comment on the cultural population and, and hi- hierarchy of right. New Yorkers, and I'd love it if you could share that with our listeners. Sure. I guess the question is, are we still status conscious, and are we still slaves to consumer goods to demonstrate what our status is? And my sense is that it's maybe true that the world is more like Manhattan than, than it used to be. I mean, Manhattan has always been a place of multiple hierarchies. So at certain cocktail parties, you can see old wealth, new wealth, museums, the avant-garde artists, politicians, all in the same room. Nobody's deferring to anybody else. It's just not clear who ranks at the top of the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of uh, 
that multiplicity now exists, not just in Manhattan, but everywhere. So, you know, nobody feels this kind of slavish sense of deference anymore to their betters because it's just not clear who's one. I mean, this is not always exactly mm -hmm. fully true, but I think largely it's the case that nobody's is is um, is clearly at the top of the, the ladder. Well, you, you mention in the book, in your book, that you say, and this is a quote, we no longer presume to tell people who they must be. And I, I found that incredibly compelling. Um, why is that? How did that happen? How did that, how did that transform into this new way of, of living? Hmm. Well, you think about that avant-garde movement after uh, World War II, you know, it was really all about refusing the, the cultural elites. So that notion that um, to improve your social position, you needed to uh, take on uh, the cultural capitals that came from a, an increasingly refined sense of taste. I and mean, that's mm -hmm. really what the beat poets, that's one of the things the beat poets found most mm -hmm. offensive about America. Yes. And most un-American in some sense, as indeed it was. Well, I think a lot of purists would still find that most offensive about Oh, well, absolutely. Yeah. But I think it's just less true now that we have this sense of, oh, there's certain, you know, that whole notion absolutely. of the canon, that there's certain kinds of music you should be listening to and certain kinds of theater you should be going to and, and good film and then bad film and, you know, that's the, that high and low distinction is pretty much in shambles. Well, absolutely. Well, I, it, funny that you should be talking about the cultural elite. I feel that now in, our, in, our, in the culture that we're living in, we're really living amongst the celebrity elite, mm -hmm. but that all celebrity is elite, whether the celebrity is actually a, a, a good musician or a bad musician or a good actress or a bad actress. Just the fact that they're famous mm -hmm. makes them elite. Mm -hmm. And in Chapter 4 of your book, you write, Ours is a culture in which celebrities play a large and influential part. Um, what is different about other cultures that do not have the same obsession with celebrity that we are now living in? Mm. in? In August, there was more coverage of the relationship between Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt than there was of Hurricane Katrina. Mm. And I find that fascinating, perplexing, depressing. Mm. Um, I don't know why that is the mm. case. If we're a culture in which everyone has to create themselves for, by their own efforts, for their own purposes, uh, and if we're, I, I think we sometimes treat celebrities as kind of like high-altitude pilots, the kind of the Chuck Yeagers of our moment. We put them... We give them the opportunity to invent new cells on the screen and off the screen. And then we watch them with a bundle of motives. Sometimes it's just rank admiration. Sometimes it's, it's, it's loathing that they should presume to set themselves so, so uh, to position themselves so grandly in the world. But very often just this kind of simple brute curiosity. What's, wow, what kind of a person is that person? And is there anything useful for me to... Uh, I think two points to be made here about celebrity that we swap them in and out with such ease. When mm -hmm. people are gone, they're just over. And Dave Chappelle was, uh, last night did an actor's, his return to kind of, to currency, uh, actor studio interview, and he said, you know, you can't stop being famous. You can only become infamous. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't be unfamous, just infamous. Uh, and, and there's this weird way in which we just, we yank them out of this, you know, position of great privilege and say, you're over. We dispense with them, and they're broken creatures in some, you know, they may be worth lots of money, but the damage 
it costs them. The personal costs of staying in place and then being removed from influence are, are exorbitantly high. So, yes, these are exemplars, and yes, they're extreme, treated extremely well, but if you look at, sort of from an anthropological point of view, you'd say, no, these are experimental vessels, and they serve their purpose. We just dispense with them. Celebrities as experimental vessels. Interesting. I, I read an interesting... Um assessment of Julia Roberts and charisma that part of uh, the reason that Julia Roberts is so successful is that she understands her charisma and knows how to work it mm. really well, mm. calibrate it mm. as necessary. And I, one of the uh, lines that I, I thought was rather beautiful in, in your book about Marilyn was that you, um, in, in analyzing her, you write, everyone had access to her emotions. And mm. I think that that is probably one of the most um, telling lines about why she was and still continues to be such a, a, a touch point in our culture. Um, Grant, we're getting towards the uh, end of the show. I just wanted to uh, let our listeners know that Grant's book is called Culture and Consumption 2, Markets, Meaning, and Brand Management by Indiana University Press. It is available on Amazon.com. And please Please read Grant's blog. It is brilliant every single day. It is brilliant. www.cultureby.com. That's correct? That's right. it. Yes. So this, this last part of uh, the show is the time for my favorite part because I get to ask little silly questions that uh, might have no rhyme or reason and they're just uh, yes, no, maybe uh, answers. So um, just a couple of things that I'm curious to know about. Grant McCracken. <laughs> um, what is the last book you read? Oh, Lord. Um, oh, uh, Will in the World. Will in the World. Yeah, it's a treatment of uh, Shakespeare. Oh, Will it's in really the World. Um, what's your favorite blog? Oh, boy. Uh, Russell, Russell Davies is a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you secretly wish you could do better? Mm, right. <laughs> What's your most prized possession? <laughs> I guess it's my laptop. How <laughs> sad. Okay. Um, what is, in your mind, the most overused word or term in society today? Oh, boy. Pass. Okay. One guilty pleasure. One, one of my guilty pleasures. Yes. Uh, the good company of bad television. And <laughs> what is your favorite curse word? <laughs> I can't say. <laughs> and one thing... I swear like a sailor. <laughs> one thing that few people know about you. That I swear like a sailor. <laughs> okay. Well, Grant, thank you. We've come to the end of our broadcast today. I'd like to thank you so much for being back on Design Matters. I'd also like to thank Brian Travis and Ruben Kloom at Voice America. I'd like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling Brands, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Joining me next week is illustrator Christoph Neiman. That should be an incredibly good show. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.